to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. Every week I talk with authors and pet experts to expand our understanding and appreciation of the animals sharing our planet. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other informative pet talk radio shows that I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to the website for radiopetlady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. I also produce the Dog Film Festival, sponsored by the Petco Foundation, which travels the country celebrating the love between dogs and their people and benefiting the animal welfare groups that bring them together. More information is at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva's owners want to feed their own pets and yours with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat, using the same care, ingredients, and facilities where they make food for people. You can find pouches and cans of their cats in the kitchen, their more economical BFF, best feline friend, and all varieties of Waruva for dogs wherever fine natural pet foods are sold. This show is also supported by Canine Advantix 2, a proud sponsor of the Dog Film Festival. Fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes can be a pain, and their bites can transmit diseases. Did you know that many products require fleas and ticks to bite your dog to die? But not Canine Advantix 2. It kills fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes through contact. No biting required. Help protect your dog with Canine Advantix 2, available from pet specialty retailers and veterinarians. Canine Advantix 2 is for use on dogs only. More information at canineadvantix.com. I am here with three wonderful women. Alexander Horowitz is back with yet another book. She is so amazing. This is the the nose of the dog. Mel Miskiman is here with her hilarious, marvelous memoir, Sit, Stay, Heal. And Paula Faseas is going to be with us from Paws Chicago, which was a beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival when I was in Chicago and is quite an amazing shelter. So I'm going to get right on with Alex. Alexandra Horowitz, welcome back to the show. Inside of a Dog made you famous, even to people who didn't care about the inside of a dog. And now you're just famous as like the dog genius, the dog, the dog understander. Is is it is it kind of thrilling to be that person, or do you hate it? Do you wish people thought of you as many other things? It's surprising and totally charming, and I love to be able to talk on behalf of dogs. So thanks for having me back. Tracy. It's a pleasure. Do you actually find in your personal life that you're like that dermatologist who people just want to lift their shirt and show the mole? I mean, do you find people <laughs> not able to do anything but say, oh, I have to ask you this thing. I don't understand why my dog does X, Y, or Z. D- does that happen a lot? Mm, yeah, it really, really does. I get a lot m- more my dog kind of comments yeah. and questions than yeah. I ever really thought possible. But it's <laughs> fascinating. Well, this new book is particularly fascinating, being a dog, following the dog into a world of smell. To me, especially fascinating for an incredibly selfish personal reason, but also because as a researcher, a scientist, which is what you are, as well as passionately compassionate, empathetic, and fascinated by dogs, I thought, how can she do a whole book on smell? I mean, okay, we know dogs are many times better smellers than us, but you could have done three books. It's just fantastic. There's so many ways in which you 
dissect what dogs seem to be doing with their noses, and then you create these ways of researching it. Is this part of what makes you a scientist and a researcher, that you look at a situation and in order to understand it better, you invent a way to study it, like your, like the pee post that you put up in Central Park with the permission mm. of the Parks Department? Mm. Yeah, I suppose in some to some extent, it's being a scientist is looking at um, a question analytically and saying like, how am I going to take this apart? You know, yes. what would be evidence for this, or how do I explore this? And the great privilege of researching dogs um, who hadn't, as you know, been well researched by academics right. until about twenty years ago, is that there's so many questions to ask and try to answer and. And many of them uh, that I've researched, I've, you know, those are questions that just come from my interest and experience as somebody who's been around dogs. So they really, you know, go right to the core of what's interesting as opposed to having to satisfy some obscure um, requirement. Um, they're just about what is interesting to me and how do I, how can I ask and answer the question? Because and that's that's very well described, and it's I think what part for me what makes part of being a dog so interesting is that it also shows the inner workings of your mind, how your intellect can leapfrog or or even delve into something that seems very obvious or something we've never questioned. You question it, and then you come up with creative ways to answer it, and very often relay it back to human abilities to do those things quite differently. When when you talk about your son at one point having these fragrant fragrant little hands, which I just loved, damp and fragrant. Yeah. Um, did, does this does this scientific bent of yours, this interest in the world around you, did, is it has it you have you honed it? Have you just di- directed it mostly at dogs, or do you find it in other ways? Is it part of your sort of mental DNA? <laughs> I do think that my son gets a my, you know, well, let's do an experiment with that kind of tendency. Um, (laughs) All behavioral experiments, obviously, but not as much as the dogs. um, But in both cases, you know, the gaze I direct toward them is is observational. And, you know, that approach of, like, let's look at these ordinary things, as you rightly explain, the things that are right in front of us. Yes. And try to look at them again with new eyes. Pretend we don't already know everything about this thing in front of us because we don't. And that's that gaze, I think, that hasn't really infected my way of looking all the time. I think what's really cool is it's not just your gaze and you're not just observational. You really throw yourself into it. I'm thinking in particular of, of the question that you raised, well, do dogs smell different from each other? Well, of course, you know, with all kinds of experiments and obs- <laughs> observation, they do. But then you ask, but would they smell different to me? Tell about the uh, your experiment on your blue love seat. I mean, that's just so hilarious. Yeah, well, I just see you buried in these sofa cushions. And your husband, you've had him employed taking notes behind your back on which of your two dogs had their rumps where. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, they both sit on the couch, and they both, they're large dogs, so they pretty much take it up, um, each takes up a half. But they switch sides. They don't have a particular preference that I've noticed. And so I got inspired by this idea that we're just not smelling um, ourselves. Humans are not smelling enough or very much, and that we actually could start to discriminate some things if we bothered to smell. And I think I know the smell of my dog. So I I asked um, my husband to tell me 
when they had gotten off from their births, you know, they'd gone off out of the room, and so the couch, but the couch had been recently warmed by them, and I went over and, you know, sniffed to see um, if I could tell which dog had been on which side, and um, to a little bit of my surprise, I could. I yeah, that I, I was said, impressed. Oh, that's definitely Finnegan. That's definitely Upton, but there's a difference in smell and when you bring your attention to it and you try this a few times it does become very clear you know people smell different dogs smell different and I could that first time I thought it might be chance so then I've done it a number of other times you know and it's I'm pretty reliable at it and I think anybody who lives with more than one animal could probably do the same exercise and and find that they can discriminate it as well if they bother to sniff closely but that, but and and yet a step further than that is you could do that with your dogs as your own little personal experiment. But as you point out, every time you step outside or inside into a different room, into whatever space, we could be smelling a lot more and getting a whole lot more experience of that room. We don't have to be. And at one point, you talk about Helen Keller and her need to to rely on that sense, as so many others were or several others were lost. But it's it's something that, as you say, we can do it. We just don't do it. And I think that you take inspiration from the dogs as a scientist, but then also just as a human. And I think it's it's kind of an interesting inspiration to humans to embrace more of the things that you take for granted or ignore. I think that I I mean that's exactly my intention. Uh, I don't know if I went in knowing that that would happen right. to my sense of smell and my feeling about the world, but I just followed the dog's lead there. And just as we should look more carefully what the dog is doing and try to attend to their dogness, as it were, I think that we can take inspiration and learn something about ourselves um, as well. Uh, in, the, in this case, what we're learning is that, yeah, there's something about our environment that our senses even have the ability to detect that we don't bother to notice, yes. probably just because of cultural antipathies. You know, we just yes. adopted a cultural stance, which is that smelling... Um, is awkward. So, you know, for instance, um, if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you a little about this. Um, the first time I went out following my dog. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm on the walk with them. They're smelling things. I'll just smell what they smell. Let's see what I can do. And, you know, immediately <laughs> Finnegan beelines for something that's been recently urinated on and I, and he sniffs. And when he's done, you know, we, we start walking, but then no, I kneel down and I sniff it too. And it was a pretty strong smell. I smelled mostly like a, it was a iron railing and I sort of smelled a metallic or a painty smell. But then, you know, I like look up and it's awkward to be down there. Literally, <laughs> dogs are looking at me. They're giving me a look. And these people, they all come clear off the sidewalk to walk around me. Like, it's really freakish to, to be smelling things closely. And, but that's just our culture telling us that it's, fascinating to me that that's not um okay and i you know i definitely felt it i i said all right i'm not gonna do this i'm gonna try to find like a culturally private place permissible way to do this right which has and there are there are expert noses you know right the ones that work for the perfume my way in yeah the perfume companies or something but you also described at one point when when you were doing the sofa cushion smelling after the dogs had gotten off and one of the dogs, I think, was Upton. Just while you were down there on your hands and knees trying to smell it, he just yeah. randomly humped your leg. I don't know. I just thought it was exactly. so great. It's like, good ma, you're down here with us doing our thing. I'm just going to do some of my stuff with you, and we're going to be all finally good. Finally, you're a dog. Yeah, you finally, you finally crossed over. I, I must say, I think that 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 very 
human kind of poetic side of you call it social science, but it's really something more poetic, more philosophical or something, is what makes these books so successful and so powerful and delightful for people. Of course, we're all dog nuts. I mean, I there are apparently six or seven people that listen to this show that aren't dog nuts. <laughs> well, you know, they probably just dialed wrong, but the rest of us are. But even with that, there's all kinds of studies and scientific books, and they can be intelligent and well-written and even have a touch of your sense of humor. But you go that extra step of really cross-species, you know, bringing it back to what do we really think about that and why do we think it. So here's my selfish, my selfish, that is probably going to make you feel really sorry for me. Because reading this book, I felt Mm -hmm. really sorry for myself. And I haven't been feeling that way about the fact that I have no sense of smell. And it happened on an accident, uh-huh. and I didn't know it had happened. And I'm reading this book, and it's like someone who's been starving on a desert island reading delicious descriptions of the most yummy food mm. that I will never have because I have to stay on the desert island and just eat whatever, the banana on the tree. And it, it really it's a friend of mine felt so sorry for me when I came to the awareness. And this was a very strange thing about the memory of smell, which you talk about in that kind of Proustian, oh, my memory of what the Madeline smelled like. It turns out, and you talk, you have a great thing about for a human to do, hold your nose and have something in your mouth and you do or don't taste or smell and then Mm -hmm. open your nose. And another one about some scientist who'd poured a bunch of like perfume water down his own nose. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. He said, he probably didn't have a lot of other subjects and that that didn't (laughs) give him the smell. And when, when I realized it, it was many weeks after actually an accident in the ambulance uh, going from East Hampton to Southampton a number of years ago when I was an EMT, a volunteer EMT. And we had a pretty horrific crash. We were all thrown around. I was only concerned if who else was hurt. We had to get the patient into someone else's ambulance and get him to the hospital and we were all knocked around, and I had some cracked ribs, and I didn't know I'd had a head injury. And it took weeks before I suddenly realized that I couldn't smell something very obvious. Hmm. And so I went to the eye or nose doctor who said, well, I don't see any inflammation, but and I didn't remember that I'd had this head injury. And they give you a, a series of, 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 cord- of steroids. You take them, a big dose mm-hmm. of steroids, so it's a shrink your nasal passage or whatever might be blocking it. That didn't work. We mm-hmm. did it again. It didn't work. And he said, although your book belies it, that so little is known about the organ of smell in humans that they don't really even know other than if there's an injury and only the nerves are damaged, eventually they grow back. But if they're sheared off by a head injury in which I guess mm-hmm. the plates of the skull would cut it, that's it. So, I can't mm-hmm. believe that's true. I mean, now that I read this book, I'm like, there must be a fix. And you talk about the Monell Chemical Census Center in West Philadelphia for humans. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. oh, I could go be a test subject. Don't they want to test me? And maybe by giving my nose or lack of it to science, they could bring it back. <laughs> and I'm just, I, it's just so yeah. extraordinary to read this book and go, oh, my God. I'm, I, I mean, the house could burn down unless I saw the smoke. I wouldn't know. Yeah that there was fire, yeah. much less well, garlic I, I or really tomatoes. I do feel sad that you don't have smell. It is, I think it is a major 
a real blow to lose this sense of um, this sense of ours. Yes. Do you, does food? Can I ask you? Does food? Do you have? Does food have a flavor? No. And you described it in the book that if mm. you couldn't really, t- you held your nose that you the, the toast would kind of turn gummy, and you say if you open your nostrils, yeah. the yeast and the butter and the maybe the caraway seed, um, you have texture and you have salty. And sweet, and you yeah. have spice, but it's just generalized. Like it's not like you'd go to a great Indian restaurant and know the difference between northern and southern, you know, curry. Really? No. Really? At, at most, there's yeah. heat. So, and this friend of mine yeah. was desperate for me because she she's very aware. Of, she loves Southern California, so there's all these fragrances of flowers all the time, and loves food. And you know, I don't dislike food, but I used to love it in a different way and it's very strange to cook for other people and you basically lose your sense of taste it's called a nosmia right you can't yeah. smell yeah, but in a exactly. sense you really don't have your yeah. sense of taste and only in the memory of how to cook there's no tasting your cooking yeah. no point you have to ask wow. someone else to sniff the yeah. milk the milk is still within the date but could you sniff and see if it smells off i mean i could drink rat poison and not know yeah, wow, that is really intense. I mean, you definitely should. I'm sure you've explored it. But, no, I didn't. I mean, they they are... sort of said it's over for you, babe. Well, I, it depends really on how on what the injury was um, that led to that. So there are people who are anosmics who go through smell training. Really? To try to get back. There absolutely are. Now, I, I don't want to give false hope. It really depends on what kind of injury you had. But there was just at Monell a smell training program um, by a former anosmic who's then now does this for other people who've lost their sense of smell. These are people who aren't congenitally without smell but have lost it like you in some trauma. And in some of those cases through, you know, practice and it's a very deliberate type of practice, really regular, they regain some sense of smell. So I'm not sure, but it's definitely worth exploring that possibility and and seeing because yeah, I mean, it's a it's a real it's a real profound difference in your life, obviously, to not have smell. Well, I get. I just went okay. Never mind. At least I can still see. But your book is what made mm-hmm. me feel sorry for myself for the first time because there you were going outside already with a perfectly functioning nose and a great curiosity about it, yeah. and and having <laughs> yourself smell even more things in new and wonderful ways and questioning all the the permutations of odor odor leaving and odor receiving that dogs have and i thought there's this whole rich world that all of us are ignoring that you are saying to us wake up and smell the coffee smell the roses but in my case i thought oh my goodness maybe i'll get on all fours maybe i need to get down with the dogs see what see what i can get cooked well, you up. know that's that's what smell training is kind of like it is about intense practice smelling maybe not what the dogs are smelling but you know things you have good memories of so i would totally you know give monella a call i'm going to give them a call of course it's a a bit of a ways from vermont to west philly but i don't know it's a little vermont yeah Yeah, it's a little bit of a hike but the smell training can be practiced anywhere um and so it's worth a it's worth a shot um even without knowing what your injury is and I don't know what it is. susceptible to retraining. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's yes, just an it, interesting thing. It seems like you knew more, you know more, you've learned more about the dog's vaso, you know, system than yeah. 
than they theoretically know about the human one, at least as it was explained to me by this iron nose doctor, that they really haven't been able to study. Well, it's it this tiny true. little organ. Olfaction that's, isn't, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's understudied. It, it was the last sensory system to be studied. There's still a huge amount of mystery about it, sort of even how smells are, are, are received by the receptor cells and made into the, the sensation of odor. You know, yes. where, well, we've mapped that pretty well with vision. With olfaction, right. it's still the Wild West. Well, what about the right and left nostril? This was something you uncovered, and that's incredible. I mean, I don't think of any of other of our yeah. senses where right and left have to do with the right-left brain or or which one you choose to use. Talk a little bit about that. Well, there is interesting work in humans that show that we gaze at one side of the face. Oh, really? When we're looking at a person first, yeah, um, using both eyes, but right. that we process the right side of the face first which would go to the left brain but yeah so for dogs they're using their nostrils or they're able to use their nostrils independently and that gets a different odor picture of each of the world from both sides so that they create a 3d olfactory image which is fantastic you know stereo olfaction and then they also sniff they seem to sniff a separate research showed that they seem to sniff um, with their right nostril first when they're presented with something to sniff and then if it's something familiar something they like they switch to their left nostril for further it's really cool and if if it's a aversive something they don't like and they use the researchers use fantastically they used um like this armpit sweat of veterinarians um <laughs> then they they just keep sniffing with the right nostril <laughs> the things a so dog doesn't want process. well i i yeah, have to really say that funny. as nutty as the new yorkers clearly thought you were to be, you know, squatting down by by an old lamppost, seeing how how that pee really smelled. There's a story a story you tell about humans that followed a scent trail in Berkeley. I mean, can you describe that? It's like yeah. the things people sure. have done around smell. It's just so amazing. It's great, and it's so unlikely because yes. we're just not used to yes. know, putting our noses in places. Well, so this study was by um, human olfaction researchers who were interested in if whether people could track at all, essentially. Yes. So they laid down a trail of a, of a, of a piece of string that had been in, um, steeped in some chocolate essential oil, and they laid it in the grass, and they put, got subjects, put blindfolds on them, made them wear big gloves um, and knee pads, and put big headphones on them so they couldn't essentially hear, right. see, or touch. And they asked if, you know, they could track this <laughs> like a bloodhound. Follow the trail, and so what they do is they get down, yeah, on all fours and put their nose in the earth. And actually, the subjects were pretty good at following the trail, and they get better over time. Um, now they're way slower than any dog would be on that, and they also, and also the the trail is still there. In other words, this piece of string is right, still in right, the grass. It's right. not like it was there yesterday, right? Nose. You know, right, which is what the tracking dog does. But still, you know, these they, they showed some ability to track chocolate through grass, you know, based entirely on sniffing. So that was a neat um, experiment. Well, I just have to say about your book as we wrap up that that experiment and your own efforts and engaging your son and your husband and your dogs in looking at the world through through the nose and smelling the world – is absolutely so delightful and so interesting and so inspirational. I really think that it not only gets people to really get their nose down in various ways, even if they're a little squeamish about it, but it really just 
widens our our view of the world because our dog's view of the world is so much wider than ours and and you take us there alexandra and it's really a gift to all of us being a dog following the dog into a world of smell congratulations and i hope this brings you lots of crazy interesting questions that you will wind up doing (laughs) something about in your next book and thank you so much tracy it was a pleasure take care i really do look forward to either a further conversation about this although i know your time is limited because you're a university professor and researcher or if at the very least in a few years another book take care thank you alexandra absolutely bye-bye this show is made possible in part by precious cat litter owned by dr elsie whose life has been devoted to wellness for kitty cats he has his own cats only clinic in colorado and has devoted his life to inventing innovative litters for the health of all members of the family, with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground. It allows you to find the early signs of kidney disease in your cat and make changes before damage is done. Dr. Elsie's company also cares about people's health and has given millions of dollars to cancer research looking for a cure for multiple myeloma. This show is also brought to you by Ollie, a brand new dog food freshly made in a USDA kitchen from real human-grade ingredients without preservatives, artificial flavoring, or byproducts. Ollie meals are gently cooked in small batches, then flash frozen and delivered right to your door on a regular schedule. No more trips to the store. Ollie meals are vet formulated to create a nutritionally balanced meal and customized to meet your dog's individual needs. Finicky eater? No problem. Ollie will give you a full refund if your dog doesn't love his food. Meals arrive ready to defrost in portioned, ready-to-serve trays. You can design your dog's ideal meal at myollie.com. Hey, Mel, how are you? Congratulations on Sit, Stay, Heal. What a wonderful book. Oh, thank you. You got such a nice quote on your cover from Peter Zoitlin, who's been on this show with his wonderful book, Rescue Road. He said, a witty, wry, and keenly observed memoir. And it's so funny that it really reads a lot like a novel. And then I have to stop and go, oh, my God, that's really her father. That's really her dog. That's really Mel. When you were writing it, did you think of yourself as a character? You know, people ask me that, and I don't because I, you know, it's sort of like, some of the stuff you can't make up, you know, <laughs> right. it's like, I, and actually when I write, I kind of see it as a movie, which is kind of weird, you know, in like your it's mind, a scene. You see it. yeah, yeah, in my mind, in my mind, like it's a scene. Where are we? What are we doing? You know, like I'm but, hovering above. That's you know, cool. Looking, so that's probably yeah. what gives it that, that feeling of being well described. So, so tell in a few words how the book came to be. You you lost your mom sort of little by little. You lost her in the way that sometimes aging parents, we lose them, kind of we lose them emotionally or mentally before we lose them physically, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, see, okay, so my parents had been married for 62 years. And they, and they let me been, just remember, they, they met as like school children, right? Right. They, yeah, like my mother was annoyed with my father when she was 12. You know, yep, so they, they had, right had really... Yeah, so they had really known each other for 70 years. Wow. Yeah, and my father is a retired police officer, so I know this is going to sound horrible, but my sister and I always figured that he'd be the first one to go. You figured and, just he was, in a, he was in a risky business and, and the men right, go first. Right, and then, and then he kind of, you know, he, he hunts, he does all this, he climbs ladders, you know, he does all this stuff. So... um. 
my mother got sick and she just, it wasn't really, she just sort of faded away. And my father was beside himself with grief. And I thought, well, I have to do something. I have to do something to get him out of his funk. So I knew he was a, he was a big dog guy, but his dog was old and couldn't do stuff. So I thought, well, wait a minute, I have this idiot Labrador retriever. Maybe, maybe I, I just connected the sad dad dot with the dog in need of a dog in need of a makeover dot. Right, and his dogs had always been the most brilliantly trained, incredible retrievers. Yeah. The long lines right. of beautifully bred, actual hunting dogs, and your dog was closer to Marley. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my dog. We had gotten our dog from a breeder who bred field trial champions. You know, and I'm like, I just wanted a dog. I didn't want, I didn't want a high octane kind of right. Labrador right. that I felt guilty about because we don't live on a lake, you know. Right. So um, I thought, well, okay, my dad can help me train this dog. So we took it out to a field every Wednesday, and my father gradually sort of came out of his hard shell and exposed his soft, chewy center, you know. Right. And so it's sort of, you know, he told me things about my mom and, we you know, we discussed feelings. You know, I mean, it was just one of those, you know, and my dad's a real, tough, you know, large sergeant in charge. Yeah. You know. But yeah. meanwhile, also, it was the fact that your dog was so unruly and so oh, seemingly God. untrainable. So it wasn't like your dad was being really supportive and thought you'd done a great job. It was more like, how did you mess up this well-bred <laughs> dog? I got that. Yeah, basically, we'd go out to this field and my father would yell at me. You know, yeah. how could you, you're waiting, yeah. you should have started this seven years ago. You know, you would just, you're not blowing the whistle right. I'm yeah. Like, oh. yeah. And the scenes were really funny. So the soft gooey center came a lot later. First, it was a lot of like tough love of you because yeah. obviously you had led this potentially champion dog down a very short alley with a brick wall at the end, which was sort of <laughs> funny because that's what most of us would have done. I would love to have you read a fairly long section in the book that is just really captures the humor and the quirkiness and the offbeatness of your writing and of your view of dogs and of human dog relationships. And it really isn't about your mom, your dad, or even your own dog, the one who eventually did become a retriever despite himself. So you can set the scene or just start reading. I think either way is good. Yeah, I think this, uh, I wrote this after my father decided that he he wasn't he had a dog that was 14 years old his champion Springer Spaniel which was another thing because I had a Labrador and he's a Springer man <laughs> and he uh, he had told us that that was going to be his last dog like he wasn't going to get another dog and it just it shocked me because he'd always had dogs right I mean right what was I going to do so okay um. I liked my collection of dead dog receptacles. There was a can with our first dog, Bob. I had the final arrangements handled by the vet, and I was never sure that what I got back was just Bob. <laughs> so I swore that when it came time for our second dog, Harvey, to go, I would take matters into my own hands. He was the golden retriever that I'd bought when I went to look at my nephew's friend's above-ground pool. He had epilepsy that was managed with drugs and had been seizure-free for years. And then, I think he was around eight, when I found him in the kitchen, standing with the top of his head pressed up against the wall, and I thought, well, that's a strange way <laughs> to have a seizure. 
not a seizure, liver cancer. A lobe was removed and he was cancer-free without any additional issues until he turned 11. That's when his house of cards started to fall. Cataracts, a stretched cornea, congestive heart failure, and then his larynx collapsed. He couldn't walk up any stairs, and I had to get a sling-like thing with a handle that made him into a golden retriever (laughs) carry-on. I entertained the thought of, maybe, you know, it was time. We had our backup pup, Seamus, in place, so I admit there was a degree of selfishness to my maybes. Only one dog, less poop, fewer vet bills. But every time I hinted around and asked our vet, Dr. Bob, do you think, I mean, wouldn't it be better if, you know, how will I know? Oh, these old guys, they have a way of letting you know, he said. Well, wasn't he letting me know? One day as puppy Seamus romped around the yard, I spotted this congealy blob that Harvey had left under the maple tree. Now, I'm no vet, but it didn't look good. I dropped him off at the clinic and ran errands, expecting to pick him up in an hour with another prescription. But when the assistant called and asked me if I minded being put on hold because the vet wanted to talk to me, I kind of knew. Dr. Bob said that old Harv was bleeding internally. He suspected from tumors in his liver, the spleen, the stomach. I mean, you could take him home and let him bleed out, but if he was my dog... I told the vet to wait until I got there, that I wanted to be with my big old glute of a golden one last time. Harvey wobbled over to me, then to the door. He wanted to go home, but I had to tell him he wasn't going home. Well, not to our home. He was going to home, capital H, home. I stayed with him, said my goodbyes through my tears until his big head fell lifeless into my lap. I'm going to put him in my car and take him to get him cremated, I said. Harvey's body was placed in the back of my car on a waterproof blanket that was part of a picnic-themed raffle prize that will now never be used (laughs) for a picnic. I mean, would you drink wine, nibble on cheese, and a fresh baguette on something we now call the dead dog blanket? (laughs) The pet crematorium place was appropriately hidden at the end of a dead end. The road was unpaved, unmarked, overgrown. I passed two sets of rusted, forgotten kennels that would have been depressing to me that day had they been new before I came to a rustic pair of buildings. I use the term rustic as in real estate speak, like handyman's dream or needs a little TLC. Nothing was plumb or level. A hand-painted sign that looked like it came from Jed Clampett's cabin hung outside the door and read office. A woman, a generic high school office lady type, was on the phone. A man sat on a chair, his stained work shirt unbuttoned, exposing a bony set of clavicles, blurry tattoos, and several scars. He made the tilt-a-whirl guy at the state fair look like an Armani model. (laughs) Excuse me, I said, but uh, I have my dog in the car. Dead, he said. Well, yeah, dead, I said. The woman hung up the phone and offered me her sympathies, got out her pad of paper, and took down my information. For a single, we charge by the pound. Wait. Harvey had lost 10 pounds in the past week. 60 pounds? I said. Finally, a good-sized golden, said the man I'll call Igor. Some of them run 100 pounds. 
which he went on to tell me in graphic detail made his job just that much more of a challenge. He pulled on his greasy work gloves and made a beeline for the door. I followed. Look, I said, I don't want to see you take him out of my car. It's unlocked. Just go and get him, and I'll wait here until you tell me that you've taken him wherever it is that you take him. I couldn't bear seeing what was still in my mind, Harvey, plopped onto a wheelbarrow like compost. I was back in the office completing the transaction when Igor poked his head in. Ah, you want that blanket back? Because some of them got a flame retardant on them, and I can't get the ovens up to white hot. (laughs) Could he not have been so specific? I was in mourning for crying out loud. Yeah, I want the blanket back. I said, the lady said she'd call when my cremains were ready. Wait, cremains? She directed me to a showroom filled with samples of memorial plaques, headstones, urns, and mini coffins, and wondered if I'd be interested. No. I knew what I wanted to put Harvey in. I wanted something fitting. I didn't know what it was until I saw it, and it wasn't in there. Igor came back and told me the coast was clear. I got into my car with the empty blanket in the back and sobbed. When I walked into my Harvey-less kitchen, puppy Seamus was waiting to be fed. I wanted my father to get another dog because I needed him to get another dog. That would mean life would continue as it always had, well, minus my mother. For him not to get another dog? No. I would have to face facts. He was getting old. I was getting older. And nothing stays the same. That really, I think I picked such a great section for you to read. It just completely encapsulates your wonderful wry, dry sense of humor and (laughs) the whole tilt, the little tilt in which you see the world of people and dogs. This book is just so wonderful, Mel, because, of course, it has a lot to do with people and people as well, because Mm -hmm. the subtitle of Sit, Stay, Heal is how an underachieving Labrador won our hearts and brought us together. And I think really the the message of the book is that in one way or another, dogs really can be the glue of our lives. And in the case of your dad, for whom there was always a dog, it it allowed you an entrance into his heart and life, despite maybe a little bit of a creaky door going in, right? (laughs) Yeah, a loud and cranky creaky door. Yeah, but you know, you you depict a wonderful relationship with him and, and you're so darling and funny about your mom as she declined. And I just the, the the great thing about the book is that it lets us see the the ludicrous joy and humor and just absurdity of life. I think that's just yeah. one of the great things about it. And 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 your dog is is forgiven all of uh, all of his inefficiencies, right? Because yeah, in well, the end, according he to my just dad, you. yeah, according to my father, he wasn't training the dog so much as he was training me. And we know that to be the case, right? With all dogs and all people. It's always that. Well, Mel, it's a wonderful book. Sit, Stay, Heal. I know that many people will get it. And and there's a lot of chuckling. It's a book where you you start to smile and you find yourself chuckling like a fool by yourself. And that's, that's, that's high praise, right? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for writing the book. And always make sure you keep a dog in your life. They deserve you. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. It's so nice to talk to you and hear you read the book. You have a specially wonderful style in reading it. Take care. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. 
We'll be right back after this quick word with Paula Faseas from Paws Chicago, a very successful shelter. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo, holistic, natural dog and cat foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble, no rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes like Vigor give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while daily greens bring vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company, partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting a forever home. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. However, not all fish oil is created equal. The Nordic Naturals difference is that their oil comes from Norway, where they use responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness. I am back with Paula Faseas, who runs and created, is the founder and director of Paws Chicago. It's a really remarkable shelter. They were chosen as the beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival when I was in Chicago. But they don't just do incredible work in the community, saving dogs and cats, but they are so wrapped up in the community. They're so great. All the TV shows love them and the radio shows and the newspaper. And Paula, you're quite amazing because... When I came to Chicago and you came to the Music Box Theater to the festival, you'd just gotten off a plane. You'd been somewhere rescuing dogs. I mean, this is just what you do. It's in your DNA. You want someone who sits back and says, well, things are going well. You're like, there's another dog to save. And I just, I really admire the fact that you're still, as they say, walking the walk, right? Oh, thank you. Well, you know, it's a labor of love. We are so passionate about animals. And we actually um, went to Louisiana with some of yes. our volunteers. Yes. Yeah, and we, we brought back vans of, of, of dogs that were given up by owners, you know, that were in bad situations and couldn't keep their pets any longer. So we were able to bring them down and get them wonderful families in Chicago. And Chicago and Paws are kind of one and the same thing. It seems like that the city has its arms around you. Whenever I said Paws Chicago, capital P-A-W-S, people everywhere would say, oh yeah, I love Paws. I got my dog from Paws. I got my dog from Paws. You've been so successful and you've been doing this for how long? It's almost 20 years now. My God. And I remember back 20 years ago when everybody was going to breeders and and nobody was thinking about the poor shelter dogs. That's right. And, you know, our mission was really to just raise awareness and get people to know what animals were being killed in Chicago. It was at that point, there were 42,000 animals a year being euthanized every year, and nobody knew it. And our message was just get out there and let people know, take pictures of them, let's show them, let's get them into malls, let's get them places when people would see what great animals were being killed, they all started to rescue. And then, of course, we knew we couldn't adopt our way out of the problem, so we opened a free spay-neuter clinic so we could help the more under-resourced families in Chicago by offering free spay-neuter for the pets and bring the source of the animals down, you know, yes, so that there weren't absolutely. so many entering the system. Yeah, 
and that so, has helped tremendously. So, so who funded that free spay neuter? Now, it, it was, of course, the Petco Foundation that was my grand presenting sponsor of the festival as I traveled the country, and they right. picked Pause Chicago. They have picked you in yeah. various ways, including giving you grants. But is yes. it that kind of grant money? Is it the money you raise from the Dog Film Festival or from the Petco Foundation no. or from donations? No. Is that how you fund, for the example, funding the funding of the spay neuter, neuter clinic? Yeah, the funding of the Spinner Clinic is really from the Chicago community. We we wow. people come to make donations. We do special events. Um, the Petco Foundation also does help us, as does um, Petco Foundation, PetSmart Charities. Nice. Uh, those are probably the two biggest nationals that help shelters in America. Um, and other than that, it's really 99% people in Chicago, Chicago land, or they get on our website and make donations to help us. Do these run these programs, and, and we also have a lot of volunteers. So we all of our adoptions are done by volunteers. A lot of our dog training is uh, trainers train our volunteers. We try to be as so efficient with that with the resources. So and we have do you uh, think, four do you star think, charity navigator, which is really we're proud of, as you should be. But do you think mm-hmm. that that involvement with the community, that commitment to you, that desire of people to volunteer, which is one thing to give money obviously very valuable. People are giving their time, driving to wherever the dogs are, driving to you, putting in the time, all as volunteers. Do you feel that this is a reflection of your leadership for such a long time? Is it very unusual for a city shelter to have one face, one leader, one dynamic, like heart and soul of it? Do you think that that's part of it? I mean, I don't mean to make you immodest. I think it helps. I I think what really helps is our culture. So we're we're not a city shelter. We are basically... Um, a private shelter. Right, um, right. So we are basically not, like, we're not the city pound. We go to the city pound every day, and we take as many as we can take into our program. And um, it's been, and we also work with the city very closely on doing the free spay-neuter, which the city does not provide. We provide that. We don't get any funding from the city of Chicago. We get no funding from the state of Illinois. We are 100% charity and just an, an organization that thrives on philanthropy. So, so I York think City- the fact that I'm the CEO and I'm a volunteer full time and um, the fact that so many of the people that have started with us 20 years ago are still with us and we have volunteers at every level and we're constantly recruiting more. We have a very strong volunteer culture and I think that's what makes us both efficient and able to really engage the community. Now, are because you saying are that that's, community. is that true of Chicago or it's been true of your shelter, that this community of our shelter? Of I, your think that, I think it's I think it's Paul Chicago. That's who we are as an organization. Yeah. And so Very do you, have, you and you have fundraisers. You have like a big black tie gala mm-hmm. at a at a fancy hotel with people and dogs. Yep. Right. I mean, you do all kinds yes, of we do everything from. Yeah, we do. We have a sidewalk. whole special events. We do three events. You know, we have to raise money through special events, too, because we have a lot of veterinarians on staff that do our spay neuter clinic, our adoption center, just utility bills. I mean, all yes. the costs we yes. have every year. So we do three fundraisers. We have a team pause which is amazing. And nationally, anyone that wants to run for Team Paws, we do the marathons that we do anywhere from three, you know, three mile runs to marathons. We, we have entries in the New York Marathon, um, London, uh, Chicago Marathon. So people can go online and read about our Team Paws, which is fantastic. And all the profits go to saving Chicago's homeless animals. When you go to the city shelter, I, I know in New York mm-hmm. City, New York City Animal Care and Control, 
even less than 20 years ago, was euthanizing as much as 85% of all animals that came in. There were just too many. And then the Mayor's Alliance, which represented 150 different groups, began Mm -hmm. to find a way to siphon them out of there and save the lives of, of the most salvageable and then of many of them. At what point did you make this relationship with the city shelter? And so they were aware that you were, of course, they don't want to kill dogs and cats. That's not their desire. They have no choice. So when they discovered that you were this woman who said, bring me your homeless, I will rehome them. Do they call you every day? Do they send you photos every day? I mean, we go there very close, right? It started 20 years ago when I took my first tour of that place and I saw these amazing dogs. I went back and adopted a dog named Daisy. And I saw at that point they were putting 20 dogs out for adoption and they were just euthanizing all the rest. I walked in the back, and this is in the days of big cameras, right? And I had a big camera in my purse and I took a picture of the gas chamber. And it was, there were dogs in buckets on tables everywhere, dead, that were. Some were in, injected, you know, with the, legal, of the yep. injection, and some were in the gas chamber. And I was so horrified. I blew up those photos, and I brought in everybody I knew and said, we have got to stop this because government isn't going to solve these problems. It's animal lovers that are going to solve this problem. And we started our first pause development board. We wow started doing events. I went to them and I said, I want to take animals out of here. They let us, we were the first group, they would let us take animals out and take them to events. And then we didn't want to bring them back there because we didn't know if we'd see them again. That's right. So My I had gosh. an office and I, on the second floor of our office, I put cages and I hired our first staff person to watch them during the week. And at oh night and goodness. weekends, we'd go to malls. And we just, we just couldn't take them back there. So we started transporting them out and then in 2007, we opened our state-of-the-art adoption center in Lincoln Park, of which we adopted about 5,800 last year out My of um, our adoption so center. So you're saying yeah. you raised the money to build a really fabulous adoption yep. center that was friendly That's to right. people. We raised also- every, it, every penny came from wow. individuals, not a penny from the city, nothing. We've never, ever gotten any money from government. It's all philanthropists, people that love animals. Um, we now also bring animals in from high kill states in southern states. Like People Louisiana. Call us all the time. We get about a delivery about every 10 days. And we don't take um, any of the big dogs. We try to, because we still have a big dog problem in Chicago, but we don't really have a small dog problem. So if there are small dogs at risk in these southern states, we're very, we will take them and we will find them great homes. Well, I can give you a perfect example of that is that one of your volunteers who clearly is just one of many selfless people was going to be on TV with me on the Sunday morning when the when the film festival was on September 11th and we had to be at that TV station live at 7:30 a.m. and this gentleman had gone to your shelter taken this little dopey looking little white dog Gia little old lady Gia Aww. when i say dopey she was like hi and she learned uh-huh. her tongue nearly hung out and he took her home overnight so that it would be a smooth trip the next morning he shows up with her. I found out later that people saw her on that TV program and already had put in applications before they ever brought her later that day to the film festival. She was adopted wow. that night. There were three dogs you brought to the festival. They all yeah. got adopted. And, yeah. you know, there's obviously such a happy feeling about it in Chicago, such a, you know, embrace. It's fast. It happens so intensely quickly. And it's just very... It's very moving. I I was visiting a friend there 
Donna Spector, who is a board-certified internist, and she practices in Chicago, and she's my co-host on one of my shows, The Expert Vet, mm. and we went to a dog park. Now, she had recently gotten from one of her clients, had a pregnant dog, and thought there were, I forget the number, Paula, 10 puppies, and there was 11, and they'd found friends that wanted the others, and so Dr. P Donna said, my kids are ready, I'll take that puppy cutest thing, Gabby, really oh. a cute puppy. So we're going to take her to the dog park. Now, people in other cities don't really know what that would be like. You either think it's a dog run with chain link fencing, or maybe a dog park is three times the size of a dog run. This place she took me was in wetlands with marsh. There were dozens and dozens of people with every imaginable dog on these paths and the dogs were in the mud puddles and the dogs were playing and there was a place to bathe them and a place they could have a drink. It was a dog culture like I've never seen. Now, it just yeah. exists in various parts of the suburbs and around Chicago. I saw dogs everywhere. Yeah. And even in the city, we do have some dog parks. We'd like to have more, of course, but um, it's a very pet friendly city because the people of Chicago have made it that way. They love their animals. We take them to you know, outdoor restaurants and cafes outside. Um, and everywhere you go, you'll see people with their animals. There's a safety factor. There's a factor of, the, of these animals just are such great companions for seniors. You know, we always say who rescued who. You, people yes. do the noble thing and go right. to the shelter and take that poor little scared animal. And all of a sudden they'll write me and I'll, they'll say this was the best thing in my life and changed my life. And wow. I thank you so much. <laughs> and so they thank sweet. you. They write you. They know you were the person that started with Daisy and one set of pictures yeah. of the horror show. And in, and yep. in a very short <laughs> amount of time, you know, it's interesting about there being where there's a will, there's a way. And the fact that you saw a problem and you said, there is a solution. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm going to find it. And you got yeah. some like-minded people around you was there anybody there who was wildly rich and said, here's a million bucks? I'm guessing no, not. not. At that point, we were really just one by one getting to know, you know, individuals and people would help us. Um, we did start with the spay-neuter clinic and Ann Lurie, who also donated the Children's Hospital to Chicago. Wow. She was our first major donor who helped us with the spay-neuter clinic. And uh, so we've had various philanthropists come and help. Nice. But I would say the majority of our gifts are really from individuals and all those small gifts that add up a lot and really help us. So whenever we have a project, like right now we are trying to fundraise, we want to triple our isolation and quarantine area so we can take more sick animals in from the city pound. They have a, still have a lot of uh, sick animals there and we only we can fill up our isolation rooms and then we're full. We want to we would like to triple our capacity so we could take more of those animals out of the city pound and um, get them into our medical facility. After they finish getting healthy, then they go to our adoption center. Because so you know that they're, medical they're, ultimate, they're ultimately adoptable. They just have to get over whatever they're suffering from. Absolutely. And mostly it's upper respiratory or or, or it's canine influenza or yes. it might be a cat with ringworm or what have you. But, you right. know, it, it takes a little time and lots of love and and good care from our medical team and also our volunteers. And then when they're ready, they go to the adoption center and they get adopted quickly. So it really works out well. It's just um, whenever we have a project, I bring it to the people. I go, this is what we need. And we go out and we ask for help. And people usually step up and, and, and help us, which makes it happen. It's pretty amazing. You have quite a big staff all of whom obviously probably, I'm guessing, started out as volunteers at some point, but they're so effective and efficient 
that they cover the costs of them probably many times over. They all work as a team to to kind of realize Paula's vision for how to get bigger, better, stronger on behalf of these animals. It, it's pretty impressive. It's not something you see in other towns. I mean, the person who runs a nonprofit is rarely the, the founder. And, and Jillian mm-hmm. Lang is that way in Los Angeles, I must say. The Lang yeah. Foundation, she's been doing it 40 years. And wow. she started an organization like yours and then was pushed out by somebody who had a kind of socially political ambitions and and she actually got pushed out of her own foundation, the Amanda Foundation, but she just started one with her own name on the door. So Paula Chicago wow. isn't called the Paula Foundation, but both <laughs> you women are a great testament to the fact that someone can, hers was the same. She wanted to take the really old, decrepity kind of dogs out of the city yep. shelter in Los Angeles that nobody was going to want. They were scrungy and they had drippy eyes and maybe Aww. some missing teeth. Like that little Gia. It was like, but I thought, They're oh, my God. They're the best ones. They're the yes. best ones. <laughs> they cling to you like little monkeys. They're like, I just want to be on your lap and in your bed. And for and so many people. there's always someone that will come in and say, I want to take the one that's the hardest to adopt and that we love it, yes. you know? Yes. It's, it's amazing. You know, when we did our first event, it was my daughter had volunteered at a kill shelter in Chicago. And when she was coming home and telling me how I had never realized shelters killed so many animals. And when she told me, and that was a private shelter that was a kill shelter, I was so stunned. I did this event and we brought in animals from all, from the city pound and from all these places. And we put them in all the stores along Michigan Avenue and Oak Street. And the next day, I had 50 calls, people saying, what's the name of your organization? We want to volunteer. And I realized, you know what? The animals have friends. People want to help them. We just have to create an organization that enables people to make that that difference. So our organization is very, very volunteer-focused. We have volunteers doing everything, and that's really important. And that's what enables us to to do so much with the resources we have. And to get and be so successful, and I think that yeah. people really are looking for a way to be involved in their community, to give back to their community, to feel right. like they made a difference. And I and Paw Chicago is such a place. And you know, if you try to do good deeds for children, human children, or good deeds for old people, mm-hmm. there's no way to do it. You know, there, there's yeah. you aren't welcome. But to make to volunteer on behalf of animals, everybody's welcome. And I just yeah, think you're right. that, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's there's no fingerprinting and there's no right right you know it's a funny story my daughter and I were working with a child a child welfare organization and we she was doing her high school community service before she did the animal welfare one and we went and they wouldn't let us do anything because we weren't yep. certified we weren't social yep. workers yep. we basically could fold diapers in the corner that was all that we they had I've, us do I've had and the I same thought, experience oh my gosh yeah, had, yeah, you know, and, but with animals, you can do everything. There right. isn't anything. We will train you. We will certify you. Yes. You can do, you know, whatever your heart desires. We are willing to train you, and we need everybody to help. Well, it's it just it was wonderful to meet you. It was very it was a very feel good feeling to have Paws be the beneficiary and to be involved in the Dog Film Festival. Of course, we're coming back. We're going to be at the Music Box and Paws Chicago will be there with whatever dogs you have that day because uh, they go. Everyone fast. in Chicago loved the film festival. Oh, that I'm was so such pleased. a great thing you brought to Chicago. Well, we're going to make it bigger and better every year, and Paws is going to be a big part of it because you are really the heart and soul of animal rescue in, in Chicago, and I was very pleased and proud to meet you and have you be part of something which I hope will be a big part of the ongoing wonderful Chicago tradition. Paula Faseas, Paws Chicago was your invention, and you continue to sail that ship, and it's, it's just a great story. Thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, thank you, Tracy. It's Look a pleasure. forward to seeing you next year. Take care of the dogs and the kitties. We'll talk again okay, soon. Okay, we'll Bye. see you next year. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. So many good deeds being done and marvelous books being written. Good things happen around animals, and I'm glad you're here to share them with me. Kiss those kitties, hug your pooches, and I look forward to talking again next week. Bye for now.